We are continuing our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Before we read God's word to us this day, let us turn and ask the Lord to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let us pray together. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us now by the power of your Holy Spirit to rightly understand it as it is read and proclaimed. Accomplish in us all your holy will, we pray. Use your word to convict, to convert, and to build us up in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is not of you and lead us in your truth. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the sake of your great name. Before we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our first scripture reading is from Exodus, the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. I invite you to open your pew Bibles and read aloud along with me. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Cain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, sea, and all that is in them, and rested on Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Genesis chapter 2 verses 18 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. 
I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Just as we did with the sixth commandment, beginning with what? was protected by the commandment, so we will do with each of the following commandments. And today we move on to the seventh commandment. So you all know what this means, right? This means that we are going to need to talk about marriage this morning, but not just marriage, we're going to need to discuss sex. And let's confess something as we begin this topic probably makes us blush a bit. My guess is, and I might be wrong, that most of us are uncomfortable talking about sex as walls of the church. I'm including myself in this. Here's the problem, though. The world is not blushing when it comes to sex. Sex is something that is openly and graphically discussed, described, displayed, There has been a concerted effort to throw off what has been considered an oppressive view that human sexuality is a taboo topic or that sex in almost any consensual form is immoral. And quite the opposite, there's been a growing belief in the world that it is harmful for people to repress their sexuality. Now it is unavoidable. It is everywhere you turn. You can't hardly stand at the checkout in the grocery store without seeing magazine covers with scantily clothed models and celebrities plastered with bold article titles promising tips for great sex. You can't turn on the television without being exposed to sexual content and innuendo. And if it wasn't in the show or movie that you were watching then you saw it in the commercials. You can't even watch a commercial for a hamburger joint without being exposed to gratuitous gratuitous amounts of human flesh. After all, sex sells. Certainly, be careful what you click on while browsing the internet. You might get a lot more than you bargained for, but then again, you might get it while innocently checking your email. And if all the sexually explicit images weren't enough, just turn on the radio and have pornography spewed into your ears. Our culture is hypersexualized. 
There was a statistic that I ran across recently that stated the average American views sexual material more than 10,000 times, more than 27 times a day that we are exposed visually to sexual content. And by a ratio of more than 10 to 1, the couplings on television involve sex outside of the covenant of marriage. And this statistic was from 1997. So it's probably not even close to capturing the amount of sexual content today. A lot has changed in 22 years. A lot. I will say more on the hypersexualization of our culture as we address this commandment in weeks to come. But as we begin this morning, I want of the church not shying away from this topic. The world is in desperate need of clarity on this issue. So brothers and sisters, we need to be clear about what the Bible says about human sexuality in order that we can give a God-glorifying witness to the world through our words and our actions. And unfortunately, the church has not always done so well in this department. The Roman Catholic Church, for instance, had a very negative view of sex and denigrated it even within the context of marriage, considering it to be a necessary. As we celebrate Reformation Sunday today, we give thanks that it wasn't just a biblical understanding of justification that came out of the Reformation. It was also a biblical understanding of human sexuality and marriage. And Martin Luther, the great reformer himself, played a major role in reclaiming this biblical understanding. As one church historian notes, it is no exaggeration to say that Luther's monastic revolt in subsequent marriage, who, by the way, that was to a former nun, represent for his ethics what his nailing of the theses in his defense at Worms rightly understood both are dramatic symbols of the very heart of the biblical message that was recovered by Luther in his reformation of Christian life and thought. Luther understood that human sexuality and marriage had serious gospel implications. So as Luther pushed back against the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church In that day, his views on marriage and human sexuality were one area that had significant impact, not only at the heart of the Reformation in Germany, but for all of the evangelical world. The modern church, though, wandered away from that which was reclaimed during the Reformation on this issue. It has certainly failed to preach and teach human sexuality and marriage with the same boldness as Luther did creating a situation in which many Christians are as confused as ever. So it's important that we not certainly don't need to follow the pattern of the world in its graphic disclosure of what people are doing in the privacy of their bedrooms. I think it is also important that we recognize something. That even as we might blush at talking about human sexuality openly and honestly in the church, God himself is not bashful about human sexuality. Here are two passages from God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. 
how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils and any spice, your lips drip with nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. We might blush at this language. It is a language whispered between two lovers in secret who are finding great delight in one another. But this is God's word. God's word is unashamedly erotic. Even if some of the metaphors used between the lovers given in scripture would no longer make a whole lot of sense in our culture. Nor be advisable to whisper in your spouse's ear. So we need to ask prudish than God. Are we to be ashamed to read and discuss what God's word says in these places? God's word is unashamedly erotic because God himself created sex and all the pleasures therein. It was his idea. Which begs the question, have we thought about sex from a biblical perspective? More than just the prohibition of sex outside of marriage? Have you thought about sex theologically? Are you even comfortable thinking simultaneously about God and sex? If you aren't, then you're going to be having a biblical perspective on human sexuality because God calls us to do all things to his glory. Have you ever thought about the reality that when the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That part of that whatever you do, that part of that all includes sex because it's a, not only a part of God's good creation, but an aspect of your Christian discipleship. And it makes sense, right, too, right? About sex in 1 Corinthians. So surely he isn't excluding sex when he writes this verse. The same thing applies to Colossians 3. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, Sex is included in the whatever you do and the do everything because there isn't a square inch of our lives in which Jesus doesn't reign as Lord. And Paul is about to address husbands and wives when he writes this to the Colossians. So surely he wouldn't exclude sex from that of the Lord and done in gratitude to God. The point is that our sexuality is not an aspect of our lives that gets excluded from our living to God's glory. And that means that it isn't just refraining from sexual sin that gives glory to God. It's also about having sex and delighting in the pleasures of sex as God intended for it to be enjoyed that gives him glory. 
In fact, sex plays a very important role in the lives of married Christians, as I hope to show this morning. Does that sound strange to you, though, that God's word you to think of your sex lives in the covenant of marriage in terms of his glory? But if we are not only going to avoid sexual sin, but also have sex in a God-glorifying way, we must have a biblical understanding of human sexuality. And if we're going to have a biblical view of human sexuality, we need to begin with the context within which sex is placed which is marriage. Our passage from Genesis 2 gives us insight into God's intent for marriage and therefore for human sexuality. So notice the shift that occurs in verse 18 of chapter 2 of Genesis. From chapter 1, we've heard the refrain that God God created with good. Six times it is repeated, and God saw that it was good. And finally, after God saw all that he had created at the end of chapter 1, we get the seventh refrain. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Seven refrains, the number of perfection, revealing that God was satisfied in the perfection, in the goodness of his creation. But for the first time in Genesis, in verse 18 of chapter 2, where we get a more detailed view of the creation of man, we read the words, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. This is very strong language, and as one commentator puts it, it indicates not only the absence of something good, but a substantial deficiency. And the commentator continues, the observation and declaration of Adam's need is all God's. God did not consult with Adam. Not good was God's sovereign unilateral assessment. Indeed, Adam might not have any idea that it was not good for him to be alone. And we have here no indication of why God makes this declaration reasonable to suggest that since God is a plurality, since God exists as three in one and one in three, and Adam was created in his image, the image demanded plurality. In other words, just as God exists in community in in himself, in his being, it is his will that we too live in community. So then, just as this situation of Adam's aloneness was sovereignly and unilaterally assessed by God and declared by him to be not good, God demonstrates sovereign and unilateral resolve to fit for him. Now, we need to stop right there and note something before we let our imaginations go wild and think that the word helper carries with it some sort of servile meaning, we need to be aware that God, God himself is referred to with the same word. He was Israel's helper. God provided aid against Israel's enemies. This is the term that Moses refers to God in Exodus 18.4. So rather than carrying a disparaging meaning, what is being noted here is that the one created for Adam would function as a complement to him. What create one for Adam according to his opposite. The woman would be Adam's corresponding counterpart. 
She would be both like Adam, being created in the image of God, and unlike Adam, his matching opposite, supplying what was lacking in him in creating a completion for what God intended for humanity. But before God created the woman, he raised Adam's awareness of what he was lacking. Notice how the animals are paraded before Adam. And he exercises the dominion given to him by God by naming them all. And as he does this, without a helper. And you see what's happening? A longing was being developed within Adam for a corresponding other for companionship. God was using all of this to help Adam to value the woman when she was finally created. And then at the right time, God calls a deep sleep to come over, to Ad, over Adam and one of his ribs was removed. The woman was indeed from the same bone, the same flesh as Adam, but she was shaped by God to correspond in form. And all of her femaleness to Adam's maleness And don't miss what happened. God brought her to Adam in verse 22. The bride being led down the aisle by her father to the man. And Adam recognized and embraced with great love this woman who was a part of himself. Look at Adam's response as he beheld his stunning bride. The prototype of all women fresh from the well of creation. She was perfect in body and in soul, sinless. And he exclaims, this at last is bone of my bone. It was a shout of ecstasy in the truest sense of the word. Ek, out of stasis, body, out of body. These, by the, word, by the way, are the first human words recorded in scripture and they come in the context of the first marriage verse 24 and 25 God's word adds to the creation of woman and her being brought before Adam and presented to him as his companion therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked What we witness in these verses is God himself ordaining and instituting marriage as a holy and solemn bond. And Adam proclaiming the joy and intimacy of marriage. This passage is declaring for us the profound union that is created in marriage shared between a husband and a wife. It is a bond so deep that man and woman are said to become one flesh. It is not insignificant that there is no other human relationship described in this way. The union created between a man and a woman in marriage transcends every other human relationship. Being revealed here in Genesis to take priority over even blood relationships. A husband and a wife shall leave their parents to be bound to one another creating a new family. 
So in the covenant of marriage, husband and wife are, by God's good design, to become an integrated and harmonious entity living together in physical, material, and spiritual unity. And this is the context that human sexuality is placed within. Sex is not mentioned explicitly in this passage throughout that man and woman come together physically as they have been created to do. This is God's good design. And it's not to be missed here that sex is placed within this relationship of committed love and trust and self-giving. And there are some very, very good reasons for human sexuality to be placed in and reserved for this context of marriage. And I want to identify three this morning. So first, perhaps the most obvious, human sexuality is for procreation. God made man and woman and told them to be fruitful. And the consequence of having sex is pregnancy. Even if our world does not, does everything it can to decouple sex and procreation, this reality cannot be ignored. And sex is reserved for marriage because only marriage creates an environment of nurture and support for children to be conceived, born, and raised, where children can grow and thrive and prosper. In God's good design, marriage is meant to create a safe and secure and loving space for children to grow up. So it isn't just for God's people. It's a benefit for everyone, everywhere. Marriage is a creation ordinance. It's a common grace that God gives to the world from the beginning of creation for the prospering of human society. It's not simply a spiritual institution. It is very importantly also a civil institution created by God for the good of all humanity. And we understand from scripture then, but also from simple observation of the world that family is the bedrock of society. And family does not work as well when children are lacking both and a mother in the home. Even all of the secular research cannot deny the reality that children raised in homes with both a father and a mother are far healthier and prove to be far more successful in school, in their careers, and in their own marriages. So sex is placed within the context of marriage because sex outside of the covenant of marriage produces devastating birthing and rearing of children and consequently for the prospering of society. But this is not the only reason that sex is placed within and restricted to the confines of the covenant of marriage. Even times, this is where a biblical understanding is said to end. Beloved, we don't want to miss what the rest of Scripture has to say here. Human sexuality is not merely for procreation. It is a part of God's good design that male and female not just fit together biologically, but that when two people come together sexually, something else happens. So here's point number two. This physical union creates a spiritual in emotional union as well. 
because we are not simply physical beings. And the giving of our body to another, to them, body and soul. This is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand that joining our bodies together with another person cannot be done without joining ourselves at all levels with the person. Merely a physical act. It is also a deeply emotional and spiritual act. And there is good reason for this within the context of marriage. There is a purpose. Sex then creates, it serves to create, and strengthen and maintain the one flesh union that God has ordained within marriage. Sex is created by God to be a sort of commitment apparatus, like super glue within a marriage or as Tim Keller calls it, the covenant cement. It is meant to bond a woman and a man together on all levels, and it is done within the the covenant of marriage. This helps to hold the marriage securely together. There is a very, very important God-ordained purpose for sex within marriage, which is one of the reasons God's word tells Husbands and wives not to withhold sexual intimacy from one another for any period of time, any lengthy period of time. This is also the means, this also means that sex outside of marriage makes very little sense from a relationship standpoint. As Tim Keller states, it is radically dissonant to give our body to someone to whom also commit your entire life. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, sex without marriage is like tasting food without swallowing and digesting. Having sex outside of marriage is trying to decouple the physical pleasure of sexual intimacy from all of the commitment that comes with the relationship it was intended to provide support for. So in a world where so many are encouraging promiscuity, arguing that it is a good thing to have as many sexual partners as necessary to find the person who is most sexually compatible with you in order that you can have a strong marriage, the deal to the world that this logic is actually very antithetical to a strong and loving marriage. Having great sex isn't about searching high and low for that one great mate. It is about reserving sexual intimacy for marriage and allowing sex to be what it was created to be. Therefore, having numerous sexual partners doesn't actually help you find the right one. It just destroys your ability to truly connect with your spouse once you do get married. It weakens the strength of sex with your spouse. Think of sexual intimacy within a relationship like the water of a river. 
As one pastor comments, the pleasures and goodness of sex are heightened, not lessened by proper restraint. In the same way, the Colorado River is made more powerful by the walls of the Grand Canyon. The very narrowness of the river's channel there makes for a greater river. Farther south, as the river flows through the deserts of California and Arizona, it is shallow and wide and muddy, even stinky in spots. Wider boundaries diminish the river. Sharper, stronger strengthen it. Less is more. The boundaries and prescriptions of sex in the Bible are for the sake of sex. Again, less is more, at least less, as understood by one man and one woman together exclusively till death parts them. And this gets to the final reason, the third and final reason for human sexuality to be placed in and reserved for the context of marriage. Sex was not merely created by God to be utilitarian. It's not simply for the procreation of children or a tool of bonding a marriage. It is also our enjoyment. God is the creator of every good pleasure and he created sexual intimacy to include intense sensation. He created our bodies to be such that sexual intimacy comes with unparalleled pleasure. And within the confines of marriage, it is a means by which a husband and a wife can give themselves to one another, to make themselves vulnerable to one another and be rewarded by finding great delight in each other. We see this in the passages that I read earlier from Song of Solomon. We see it in other passages like in Proverbs 5, verses 8. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Ecstasy is an accurate word for the delights enjoyed in sexual intimacy. For its pleasures are an out-of-body, otherworldly experience. But don't miss this. This ecstasy has a purpose. Its point is to point us to the greatest pleasure. As do all earth, human sexuality points us to God himself. Its creator. Its delights provide for us a foretaste of the delights that we will have in God's eternal kingdom where we are brought into perfect union with God and will enjoy him eternally. Therefore, we don't need to feel ashamed or certainly not guilty about desiring and enjoying sex within our marriages. Desiring and enjoying sex is not opposed to virtue. God wants us to have great sex lives within our marriages. Sex and the pleasures contained therein were created for us and for our good. And sex as a pleasure has a legitimate way of being fulfilled and carries with it a very important purpose. This is yet another reason for it to be reserved for the covenant of marriage. 
For as we find the greatest delights of sexual intimacy as created by God only within the union of marriage, so too do we find the delights of eternal life with God in our union with him and the power of the Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul reveals for us in Ephesians 5, marriage is meant to demonstrate the love between Christ and his bride, the church. This is why marriage holds such a prominent place in scripture. Marriage is instituted by God at the beginning of creation. The relationship between God and his people is described as a marriage throughout the Old Testament. And when the people stray from God, it's described as adultery, as they have prostituted themselves to other gods. And as we come into the New Testament, we find that the first miracle that Jesus performs is at a wedding. In the Gospels, the parables of Jesus' return are compared to the coming of a bridegroom to a wedding. In script, a great wedding feast. Again and again, we see marriage mentioned, drawing our minds to the union we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. By the costly price of his blood shed on a cross, we were purchased and reconciled back to God that we might be his bride. And our inheritance is that we get to spend eternity with him in the security of his love, being brought into full unity with him, enjoying the pleasures of God forevermore. And it will be beyond our wildest imagination. This is why it's so important that we hold marriage to be sacred. This is why it's so important that we hold sex to be sacred. And this is why God gives us the seventh commandment. To protect sex and marriage as sacred. So as Christians, we should be those who are known as placing a strict biblical parameter around sex because we value it, not because we are embarrassed by it or opposed to it. Our attitudes concerning sexual intimacy to the world, the joy and gift of sex as given to us by God in the context of marriage. And God should be glorified in our sex lives and in our marriages as these things point to him in the riches that we have received by the blood of Christ, which has been shed for us to bring us into eternal union with him who loves us and who has given himself up for us. Thanks be to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise that you have instituted marriage for the prospering of all human society, but also marriage for the purpose of pointing to the great love you have for the bride of Christ, the church. We thank you that you are a God of pleasure that you intend these pleasures for our good and for your glory. Lord, help us to understand how we are to glorify you. 
and help us to live by faith. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Heidelberg Catechism question number one. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At the cost of his own precious blood, he has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the dominion of the devil. He also watches over me so well that not a head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together to fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for him. Amen.